you guys can have a seat. If you're there in Mark, just turn a page or two. We're going to be in Mark 15. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Uh, we're in this series, or we're actually finishing this series today, uh, asking the question, what is the gospel? So we began the book of Mark 12 weeks ago, beginning of the year, and we started with, who is Jesus? We spent six weeks asking the question, who is Jesus? And then these last six weeks, finishing today, we've been asking the question, what is the gospel? And so who is Jesus, and what is this that he came to accomplish, or what is the message that he gave us? And today, obviously, since we left off last week, if you were here last week, we left off with Jesus dying on the cross, breathing his last breath, and so we're going to pick up the story right there. Um, what I want to ask you really is, how has Jesus prepared his disciples for this moment? And so Nancy just read to us this passage, and I'm going to put one, one of the verses back up. It's Mark 10, 34, it says, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so, as you heard Nancy read to us, that's the third time really clearly that he had told them he's going to die, be dead for three days, and then he's going to return, he's going to resurrect from the grave. Now, he's been saying this to the disciples, he's been teaching them this, it's been a very clear teaching, like these words are not ambiguous this is what's going to happen with great detail, then I'm going to rise from the dead. But you have to give the disciples a break, right? They're, they're hearing this, but that has never, ever in human history happened. And so they're having a hard time comprehending it. Now, partner that with the reality that many of them had a view of how this should go, right? How Jesus should be. We want him to be a military hero who's going to overturn Rome, or, you know, a king, like in the royal sense, and, and kind of come in that kingly power. And so their, their views of it, their ideas of how things should have been, have not been met, right? We can stumble into that, how we think things should go, and when they don't go that way, sometimes it trips us up. He's been telling them this, but those two things are battling them. This has never happened. We're not really sure what you're saying. It's confusing. And this doesn't look the way I would have it look if I designed it. So here is kind of a main idea for today. The gospel is a resurrection of Jesus. Jesus promised a resurrection and proved it by rising from the dead. He showed himself to his disciples and commissioned them to tell others. The apostle Paul will go on to write, if this isn't true, all of my preaching is in vain right? If the resurrection isn't true, he says, all my words are wasted. And consider that. If we follow Jesus, and if Jesus says, I'm, gonna, I, I'm alive, here's what's going to happen, here's how I will die, and if that all comes true, but he says, then I'm going to raise from the dead, and if that doesn't come true, then he's just pretty much any other person, right? It's just any other guy. I can tell you I'm going to die, because I will, likely, but it's coming back from the dead that validates who he is. So Jesus dies on the cross. That's where we pick up the story. Verse, it's uh, Mark 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. Pick up the story, right? He's given his life on a cross. He willingly exhales his final breath. He chooses his moment. He is both God and man. He is God become flesh. 
And so he is not just a sacrifice made by the Father, an unwilling participant, but he is a willing sacrifice. Yes, God sacrifices his son, but it is important to note that Jesus gives his life for us, right? That on the cross, he chooses this path. When he prays in the garden, he said, if there's any other way, I'd prefer not this one, but not my will, right? Speaking of his human what he's feeling in that moment. He says, but your will, God, like the plan that we have is what's right. And so Jesus goes through the persecution. He proclaims it ahead of time. They'll mock me, beat me, spit on me. Then they're going to crucify me. I will die, but I'm coming back. And so he willingly endures all this and gives his final breath for humanity, his choice, his time. We'll see that in the story today. It's a bit important. So it is now evening, the day of preparation before the Sabbath, and Jews are going to want to get him off the cross and bury him before, it enters, before they get into the Sabbath. So verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is an interesting kind of a detail that we get about Joseph. He was a respected member of the council. So this is the Jewish council, the leadership of Judaism that has opposed Jesus with every step. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Herodians, all of them collectively have opposed Jesus. It's been a political opposition, not just a theological opposition, right? He is gaining followers. He has authority and power. When he preaches in the synagogue, people say, what kind of teaching is this that has authority and power? It's different. And the religious leadership knows they're losing ground to him. And so there's this political push against him. So Joseph of Arimathea is a part of this council. We don't know if he's a Pharisee or a Sadducee by this text at least. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. And it says that he, a respected member of the council, so he's part of that, but he's also looking for the kingdom of God. So Joseph kind of finds himself in between two things, in between the religious leadership he's a part of and he's a human trying to figure out what is God doing in this moment. There's this faith and politics moment that Joseph experiences, right? That there's, hey, we want to, I want to be faithful to what I believe and the group that I'm a part of has executed this man for power, political gain, but then I'm also wondering, could this Jesus be who he says he is? Could he be the Messiah we're all waiting for? So he has this moment. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he, Jesus, was already dead. And so again, what we have is this moment. Caesar, uh, excuse me, Pontius Pilate enters this, and he's been following this this kind of story, this trial, asking questions of Jesus. Another gospel mentions this famous line of Pilate saying, what is truth? Really wrestling through, like, what do you mean you're the truth? What is truth, right? And so he hears that Jesus is dying. He says he's surprised that he would already be dead. So we've talked about this. The crucifixion was, a, was designed by Rome, was created, designed by Rome to torment a human, right? To Inflict as much pain as possible while keeping them alive for as long as you could, making this one of the most torturous deaths, if not the most torturous death in human history. 
right? This isn't a guillotine where take a head off and the person is dead or, you know, firing squad where they're gone. This is how can we torture a man? And so you could stay alive for days, and we've talked about this. They would nail your feet with your knees bent, and you would hang from your arms, and it would, it would really it would cut off your breathing and even blood flow like the carotid. And, and so you, by nature, you would push yourself up on the spike through your feet to, to stay alive. You would fight for your own life, causing yourself immense pain. And so Pilate hears that he has passed. He says, well, that was kind of quick, Right? Again, we've talked about this as Jesus gives his life. It says in verse 37 from last week that Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last breath. He gives his life. It isn't taken from him. Verse 45, so when he learned, Pilate, learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Jesus is buried. And I want to talk about the gospel in two parts today. One is super common, right? We talk about the life and death of Jesus. Jesus dies for our sins. That God created us, loves us, designed us, made us to be worshipers of his. And the thing that has broken that relationship are our choices, our sin. And yes, we've inherited sin. We're born in sin. People before us sinned and they give that to us. We pick up this legacy of sin and brokenness. We inherit it. But then we add to it, right? And we all choose to do things wrong. In fact, as Christians, I think we should be the most aware, right? If you're a Christian, you're sitting here today, and you understand what sin is, of choosing your way other than God's way, you should be more aware, I should be more aware of what sin is than the non-believer, the non-follower of Jesus. Fair? Rather than seeming superior or more holy or hypocritical, we should understand our sin even more. Good, I'm glad we agree. All right. So Jesus dies and he is buried and his death is to cover our sin. Unfortunately, the modern gospel today often leaves us kind of there, right? Where our sins are forgiven. But there's more to the gospel. Remember, we're talking today about the resurrection. So Jesus dies for our sin. And I just want to give you an image. And we've done this before. We're talking about baptism. We're going to do baptism soon. If you have never been baptized, we'd love to talk to you about baptism. But I want you to imagine this as we immerse people in water for baptism. You know, you are then put under the water to symbolize Jesus' death. And so we're going to baptize you and you go under the water. And if it stops here, we have issues. Lawsuits, I'm sure, right? It would definitely inhibit growth in the church, for sure, right? You see, death and resurrection are symbolized in baptism. Yes, there's an image of cleansing as well. But you go into the water, die to the flesh arise in Christ. Those are the words that I say. And so I'll say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Die to the flesh. And then you'll go under the water and you come back up. I try and wait till people are out and talking to them. So arise in Christ, right? And so the gospel, yes, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, Jesus' death covers the penalty. He swaps his death for your death, his life for your life, really. The penalty he pays instead of you but the gospel doesn't stop there. Yes, sin and death are a part of it, but it can't stop there. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. 
So Sunday comes, right? We began this journey on the week of Passover, right? Passover is eight days long. It, it culminates in a feast on Thursday, the Passover meal, where Jesus then turns and serves his disciples communion, taking away the need for a sacrifice of a lamb, saying, listen, this is a covenant in my blood. No longer do we need the animal sacrifice. I'm going to fulfill this, right? He brings fulfillment to something they celebrate. He says, my body broken, my blood shed. This is for you. And it's that night where he's betrayed and arrested and falsely accused and falsely condemned and then eventually crucified. And then he dies and they take him down to bury him and to remove him before the Sabbath. And so the, the Sabbath for the Jews was a day where you did no work. And so you would want to get him buried before that and then you would want to not do something on the Sabbath. But this anointing piece that these two women named Mary are doing are not only just, we always think of it as like in terms of caring for the body, and I've heard it even described as kind of pre-care, um, like the body decays so fast that this was a way of, it, but it wasn't really. It's really not that, it's not about the body. It, it's kind of, in a, in a, probably in a greater way, like when we send flowers or cards, it's a way to care show care and respect for the one that you lost. And so they would come and they would do this process. It was a Jewish tradition. We, obviously, we send flowers, we make phone calls, maybe we send meals, we do something. But this was their way of honoring that, of showing their love for Jesus. And so these women care for Jesus' body in that way. Verse 3, And they were saying one to another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So the, the stone that covered the tomb, right, as Joseph of Arimathea lays him in a, in, a, in a tomb cut out of this rock, they put him inside of it, and then they cover it with a rock. But this has also been, and other gospels expand on this, this has been a way where the Jewish religious leadership can also keep an eye on the body of Jesus because he proclaimed he would return from the dead. And so they don't want his disciples to come in and steal away the body, so they put this large rock to cover it, and they stationed guards out there, and so then the guards would roll it away, or you'd have to bring someone to roll it away. Rome wasn't really volunteering to help Jewish mourners. And so it was this way, it was, it's an interesting thing, because we're going to see some of Jesus' disciples' response and even these women's response in a minute. But the idea of that rock, this giant rock in front of the tomb was in part the religious leadership trying to prevent what Jesus had said he would do, he would raise from the dead. So rather than have some kind of trick played by his disciples to fulfill what he said, the people that don't believe in him are taking precautions. And they've got this giant rock. And so the women are coming and they're like, who's going to roll the stone away? And then they get there and the stone is rolled away. Now I point that out because we're gonna see the response of the people who should have believed in Jesus and are not all that filled with faith. But for now, here's what they do. So they go to care for the body. Verse five, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Other gospels tell us this is an angel sitting inside. Mark tells us a young man in a white robe. It says they're alarmed, right? Yeah, they're taken by surprise for sure right? It's that moment, again, like, I don't understand what's going on. Verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so here we see, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. He's risen from the dead. And so back to the gospel. God who loves us, created us, designed us, sin that separated us. Jesus that's come to cover sin and gives his life to forgive us of our sin. And again, use that image of baptism. You don't just go into the water. You can't stay there. You have to come back out, right? Not just because of the symbolism, but because we have to breathe, right? And so we know, okay, there's, you can't just stay here. And I want you to just theologically now think of that and imagine that Jesus' death covers your sin, but there's nothing else. So now you're basically the forgiven version of the same broken human you were five minutes ago, you're just forgiven. But all these things are still true of you. All this brokenness, all this struggle, all this sin, all the wrong you have done, all the wrong that's been done to you are still true of you. There must be more, right? So Jesus resurrects from the grave to give new life. It is not just Jesus showing he is the savior he said he would do. It's not just Jesus who is keeping his word, I'll die, I'll return, right? It's not just that, but it's part of the gospel. You see, a part of the gospel message is not just that you're forgiven, but that you're given new life, that you are created or made new in Christ. So I want to give a couple verses here. Hebrews 10, 12 says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So when Jesus dies for sin, it is necessary for him to rise up and be seated with God, right? That there is more. Forgiveness is step one. There's more. Jesus must raise from the dead. Here's Romans 6. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You too, in the gospel, are made alive. Your old self dead, your new self alive, alive in Christ. And that's only true if Jesus rose from the dead. Again, we go back to baptism. You die to the flesh, you arise in Christ. It is symbolic of what God has done inside of you. It is a place where your forgiveness and God's promise meet together and give you new life. Right in Acts 2.38, it's going to tell now, these guys are going to ask after the first message preached by Peter, first message preached by the church after the ascension of Jesus. At the end of it, they're going to say, well, what should we do? Peter's going to say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we talked about. And he says, you receive the Spirit, right? You receive power. You receive the Holy Spirit. There's more, right? Your sins are forgiven, but you're made alive. Like inside of you now lives Jesus. The very Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead gets to live inside of you. You get to be empowered by the gospel. Resurrection is the place where we find our new life. When we struggle through, like my past, addiction, or when you're having a hard time, or when you're grieving, or in a hard marriage, or raising children, just any children, right? They're all hard, right? I was going to go with spouses, but then I thought better of it. There's less children than there are spouses. I should just go that route, right? Consider your audience. All right, so where you're given new life, right? Like my life doesn't look like my old life at all. 
And it doesn't have to be my background, your background, right? You don't have to have lived like I did. You can be raised in the church. You can be raised in the gospel. But there comes that moment, that tipping point, where you're like, okay, that's, I'm in, right? I'm doing that. Whether you were raised there and your parents had you baptized as an infant and you have always been in a family of faith, that's great. There's still that moment where you're like, yep, I'm in. Like, I want to follow Jesus and not do the other stuff, right? I spoke at the high school this week. I have to share some of my story and Saul's story. And Saul's story in Acts 9, there's also Ananias, right? And in Ananias is this guy who's just praying. And it dawned on me, when Jesus speaks to Saul, it's dramatic. Saul is blinded for three days, doesn't eat or drink for three days, because he is confronted with Jesus, who he thinks is not God. And then he speaks to him very much alive. It is a very challenging encounter for Saul. And then we read the next verse. And a man named Ananias is praying, and Jesus speaks to him, and that's just a conversation. It's not negative at all. See, when we make that decision to follow Jesus with all the baggage of a different past, we're just choosing to not have all the pain and suffering that other people have gone through. Like, I was hard-headed enough to go through, right? We make that decision to follow Jesus. We are given new life. The promise of the Spirit lives inside of us. We're empowered to be different. That's why Jesus uses images like born again, made new, right? That you are made new. So verse 6, let's read that again. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now I read that a second time because I want you to hear this. Seeing the absence of the, dis, of the dead body of Jesus is not the same as seeing the living Jesus. Are you with me? Right? Seeing the absence of a body is not the same as seeing the presence of a living Jesus. So I want to give them a break, right? I, I want to just be honest. We tend to judge the people we read about when we have the whole story and we got the whole kind of idea. I was going to fall on you. I hope you're going to catch me. And uh, so, um, <laughs> you didn't see that. So, uh, I'm more likely to just tell on myself. I know. See? Where were we? All right. So, the absence of his body. We read this and like, why don't they believe? He's been telling them over and over and over again. We just read it, right? But you got to be in the moment. The absence of his body is not the same thing as when they see the living Jesus. So, verse 7, the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So reminder, Jesus said it already, just like he told you. Now, go tell the disciples and Peter. Why and Peter? Because Peter needs a little encouragement. He failed epically, right? Okay, so go tell the disciples, yes, Peter too, right? Yes, Alex is included, right? And you know, that's how we do it here, right? Okay, you get it, right? Those of you who don't know, Alex is my assistant. He is the butt of most of my jokes. So anyhow, if not me, him, you know, verse 8. And they sent out and they fled from the tomb. So they went out, these are the women, they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Listen, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So an angel tells you, go tell other people, my encouragements, do it. <clears throat> right? But I want to give them a break. The absence of a body is not the same as seeing Jesus alive. I just want to give them a break. Right? Meaning... That when I stand before Jesus, I can say, hey, listen, I gave them a break. Like, I get it. I probably wouldn't have done any better, right? 
recognizing my own frailty in the moment, that I don't know I'd do any better. And so they're afraid. They say nothing to anyone. They don't do what they were told, right? So they were commissioned to tell others. Now, if you're following along in a, in a, in a Bible, whether a paper or digital, you may have this note. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20, which may give you pause. You're like, okay, so why is that there, right? Now, we could skip that, but that wouldn't be fair to the text for sure. And so here's what that means. And then for what it's worth, which isn't much, here's my opinion on that, right? So the next verses are around in many old manuscripts from the first century on forward. Remember, Mark's gospel was one of the first Gospel was the first gospel written. There are letters by Paul that are earlier, but it is one of the earlier writings. The earliest, some of the earliest copies, and again, no email, no scanner, right? You had to copy them by hand. And some of the earliest copies found don't have the next few verses. Some of the earliest copies do have. Many, if you take all the earliest copies together of the first hundred years of the church, so from the late first century through the late second century, the copies that do have this, many of them come with a little note in the middle that says, we're not sure about the rest of this, but we're adding it, right? So here's what I like about Christianity, and I think this is what's fair, is if there's a question, we should put the question before you, right? You should know, hey, there's a question about this text, right? We're not trying to convince people of something that isn't true. We're not selling something, right? So we're not just kind of raising benefits and ignoring things that might be negatives. We're just being honest, like this is what we have, right? 2,000 years ago, most of this stuff was written. Well, all the New Testament, roughly 2,000 years ago. And we don't have all the copies of that. That's legit, right? We also don't have a single handwritten copy of anything Shakespeare wrote, but we think we know what it was, right? Why? Because people memorized it word for word. And why? Because monks took copious amounts of scrolls and copied things over and over and over. And so the most honest and probably the best way is to give you all of it and say, hey, some Bibles or some early manuscripts don't have this part. Now you've been warned and you can read it, right? Now you know. This might have been included, this might not have been included. And it's honest. I'd rather have Christianity and translation be honest than biased. Fair? And so the rest is in question. Now, to be fair, out of all the books in the New Testament and this little section right here, not bad, right? For all the books in the Old Testament, we have entire copies of Isaiah. That's amazing. This one's just got one question about a few verses, 11, 12 verses. So what are we going to do today? I'm going to look at three stories that are repeated in other Gospels that we know for sure exist in other Gospels. So for me, fair game, right? So verse 9, it says, Now when he, meaning uh, Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out the seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So of course, this parallels John chapter 20, where Jesus resurrects from the grave, and then he shows himself to Mary, right? So we know this exists in Scripture. Mark tells us that they heard that he was alive, and that they'd been seen by her, but they didn't believe her. So now she believes, but now she's seen. She sees, and she believes. 
Now she goes and she tells others, but they don't believe, right? And that is consistent with the Gospel of John. Verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. So that parallels Luke 24, right? That is the resurrected Jesus meeting with the disciples on the road into the city of Emmaus, right? As they're moving into this road, he appears to them. It's an interesting story. They don't recognize him. He doesn't allow them to recognize him. But then he begins to explain from all of Scripture, from the law and the prophets, how they all spoke about him. And then he sits down, he has a meal with them, and it sounds like he serves them communion, and their eyes are open, then he disappears. It's an interesting story. It's an amazing story. It's one of my favorites in Luke. But Jesus reveals himself to two other disciples... And then once they realize who he is, they return. But again, verse 13, they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Sounds familiar, right? The disciples, if nothing, are consistent, right? Here's a note for you, and we'll put this up. Believing in Jesus. Jesus spent three years teaching his death and resurrection, but they didn't believe, meaning his disciples. What has God said clearly to you that you struggle to believe? Like, what are the things that are said that are so clear? And I know there's a lot of things that are not clear. There are some ambiguous things harder to understand. And to be fair, death and resurrection, especially in the moment, that's a fair challenge, right? But we know this. Right now we have all of this. We have a completed story. So we have this, and, and there's so much that's been told to us. And so I want to put it in a lens like this. I can look back on the last 25 years of my life from the moment where Jesus met me in a cell, right? I can look back to that moment and all the things that God did throughout all that time in my faith, all the amazing things that God has done, and I can look at my life and the things that are undone, and I should have amazing amount of faith because what God has already done, right? I have a relationship with my wife, I have a relationship with you, I have a relationship with my friends or whatever, and you have a history, Right? Faith isn't blind acceptance of things. Faith is more like you have a chair you're sitting in, and you have faith that the chair will hold you. Why do you have faith? Because you've sat in other chairs before. If you're Yvette, you've been sitting in that exact same chair for three years, right? I mean, like, with weird ownership over it. But that's okay. Anyhow, but you know, you know that chairs will hold you, Right? And so you sit in it with some level of understanding. That's faith. Faith is actually taking that and then sitting in the chair. Yes, you have a reason to believe, but it's faith when you sit in it, right? And then it holds you, and then you know more for the next time. The chair will still hold me, right? Well, okay, that God will still hold me throughout this because God has always been with me when he said he was with me right? And so as I look at the unknown in front of me, as I look at the times that are ahead, that are struggles, that are trials, that are hard, when I look at those, I have faith because what has happened, and I get to believe that God will be there, that God will hold me, right? And so the disciples had this. They had three years of being with Jesus, and all the miraculous, all the amazing, all the teaching, the very clear teachings about the resurrection. And so it's a fair question to ask, then why couldn't they believe? Why didn't they believe? Verse 14, and afterward he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. So this is the 12 disciples minus Judas, right? So he appeared to the 11, uh, 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table. 
And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So Jesus critiques their unbelief. That's fair, right? It's, it's fair in this sense, right? Well, Jesus did it, so it's fair. We're going to go with that. But here's what I can see is equitable in that sense. He's been telling them, and then he sends messengers to them. Now they're hanging on to this idea of, I won't believe until I see, right? We know in the Gospel of John, Thomas also says, well, I'm not even going to believe after seeing, like, at a touch, like, I gotta know, right? But it's at that point, when Jesus has done enough, when he has revealed himself to some, he has promised to meet them, and yet they still don't believe. So with all this history of walking on water and feeding the masses and raising Lazarus and a little girl from the dead and, and performing miracles and then saying, listen, I'm going to be betrayed, that happened, Right? I'm going to be falsely accused. That happened. I'm going to be falsely condemned. Check. Right? I'm going to be crucified. Yep. Mocked, spit on, beat. Yep. And I'm going to raise from the dead three days later. And you're looking at the clock. You're like, it's been five days. I should believe this. That Mary was right. That the other two disciples were right. Because this is what Jesus had said. And, and we live in that place. Where it is likely Jesus isn't going to reveal himself physically to us because he's already done enough. And if you're even new to Jesus, the people around you have those stories of his faithfulness. They have the testimony of what Jesus has done. I'll share my story. The people next to you will share their story. There's enough to take that step of faith that you might have your own stories with Jesus, right? That kind of like, here's all the proof not your turn. Not your turn to take a step. And then Jesus says, I'll meet you there, right? And I'll fill you with my spirit. You'll be baptized. You'll be forgiven. You'll be empowered. Like, I'll meet you, right? But there's a, I go first, and then you respond, right? Jesus critiques their unbelief. Here's another for you. Hardness of heart. Our hearts are hardened when we ignore the spirit, continue to sin, and lack prayer in God's word. Now, there's a bunch of other things. But I figured we'll start with four things, Right? When God is leading us through his spirit inside of us, right? I'm assuming that this is a Christian, this is a believer, has been baptized, has the Holy Spirit, all those kind of things, right? When God says, go this way, and you ignore God, you begin to build up calluses, right, is the metaphor on your heart. When God convicts you of sin, and we all do this. We've all done the first thing, I'm sure. And then God has convicted us of sin, and we continue in sin. Again, callous, Right? We continue on down that road, we end up hard-hearted. When we don't pray, when we don't read scripture, we don't gather together, we don't go to church, we don't join with our community groups, and we don't do those things that keep us on track, that keep us in line with the gospel, right? Because really, the greatest, I'm going to say this, even those, well, everybody else in here really has more impact on your faith than I do, probably, if you're doing it right. If you're meeting with them, if you're, forming those, if you're doing those small group communities, you're meeting in those living rooms or wherever you meet, they will shape you more. Yes, I have an influence, but really that's Jesus anyways, right? I'm just along for the ride and grateful to be a part of it. But it's the one another's in scripture, the many, many one another's in scripture that really kind of knock the edges off the Christian and keep moving them along the journey 
It's those that pray with us and stand with us and walk with us when we struggle. It's those that celebrate with us when things are good. It's those that, that cry and mourn with us when things that are hard. Right? It's that. That's the Christian journey. That's why we're called members of a body. Right? And that is not the global, that's the local church. You can't be one another's with the global church that you can never see or meet or touch. But it's the people in the room. And this, even this, not big by any stretch of the imagination, but this is too big to live out those one another's with. To be real and transparent with one another. To encourage one another. To correct, rebuke one another when needed. To love one another, forgive one another. Well, that takes a smaller community. That's why we do community groups. That's why they're so important to our faith. Hardness of heart. When we see those things, that's what leads to hardness of heart. Verse 15, and when he said to them, meaning Jesus, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So the question is, so where do we, where do we go with all of this? We've seen people believe. We've seen people not believe. We have this really rare Joseph of Arimathea kind of going against the crowd he's in, trying to figure out, like, Jesus might really be the one, right? We have the Pharisees and religious leaders who don't believe Jesus is it. They want him gone, but they believe more about the resurrection than his disciples do. They're trying to block him in, right? Not that that's going to work. I get it. But they're at least reacting to it. Then you have the disciples, those that he knew, those, the, the two women called Mary and, and, and those who went to Emmaus and the others, the 11, all of them who at first don't believe the very words that Jesus said he would do. So what do we do with all this? Once we get on the other side of that, okay, I believe in this. I've heard enough to at least take my step of faith. I want to respond. I want to do that. What do we do? So I want to leave you with two things, a command and a promise. Our job is to tell others that Jesus is alive. Now I want to pause. We talk about the resurrection. We talk about an event, a thing that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was in the grave and got up out of the grave. That's the resurrection. The gospel message is that Jesus is alive. That's different. See, when we say, where's Jesus? Well, he's in heaven today. Okay. Well, where's God? Well, he's in heaven. Okay. Where's grandma that died? Well, she's in heaven, right? All these people, but none of them are resurrected like Jesus. Jesus is alive. I would still say, yes, he's with God, but he is different. That he is alive, that the grave no longer has power over Jesus, that he has gone through the grave and come out the other side in a way that we will all do. The firstborn of the dead, Romans calls him. That he is alive. And so I want to pause there. Our job is to tell others that Jesus is alive. That is different than just Jesus is resurrected. Those who come to faith and are baptized are promised a life in Christ that cannot be taken from them. Right? So there's a command to do, and there's a promise for all who believe. Right? And again, those words in Acts 2.38 are so clear when Peter speaks to the thousands who want to come to faith, and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, there's one, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. That's two. He says this promise is for you and for your children, for generations after you, for the whole world, for all people, right? But the important part is it's for you, right? That you would turn and follow Jesus, and part of following Jesus is telling others about Jesus. 
right? I get a new part for the Jeep and I can't wait to tell Rob, right? I mean, like, how insignificant is that? And yet we have a living Jesus. Why can't that be at the top of my list to talk about, right? We tell everybody everything else. Social media is riddled with what we did new or got new or met new. Proclaiming a living Jesus is the message. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We pray to a living God. We pray to you, and we pray in your name because you have lived and died and rose again to live forever. And we know that you will one day come again and reign here eternally on earth, that you will right every wrong, that you will fix everything that is broken, that you will heal everything that is sick, and that you will make just everything that is corrupt. And those things are so, it's so much that is so far outside of our world today that we just can't even imagine what that will look like. But we know it is good. And we know that we have a job in the meantime while we're still in this flesh before we inherit an eternal life, an eternal body, an eternity with you, that this job here is to tell others and give them the promise that you have called them to be baptized and, and recognized in your life and death and resurrection, and that you have given them your spirit to live. So Jesus, we hold that up. Will you give us boldness to speak? And will you lead others to you through us? It's not about us. We just get to be a part. What a privilege we get to be a part. So Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.